Amen. Matthew chapter 25, starting to read at verse 14. Going to read a lengthy passage, so bear with me, please. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise he that received two, he also gained other two, or another two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of these servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And he also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth, and lo, there thou hast that is thine. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchanges, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury or with interest. Take therefore the talent from him, And give unto him which hath ten talents. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bless the Lord. With the help of the Lord this morning, I'm going to be preaching on the thought of your talent today. Your talent. Amen. The phrase kingdom of heaven is only found in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, It's an interesting fact. It appears there some 32 times. And the Jewish people were very focused on the, the coming of the Messiah. But when you read the gospels, you will get understanding that the Messiah that they looked for was not the Messiah that came. They looked for somebody who would come and deliver them in a very physical sense in a very earthly sense, that would restore them to being the superpower of the world as they were when King David sat upon the throne. And that was their preconceived notion of the coming of the Messiah. But they missed that. And because Matthew's gospel is, some people suggest that each of the gospels have something of a target audience or that there is a particular way of thinking that it is, it is written to address. And Matthew's gospel is often considered to be addressing the Jews or at least the Jewish way of thinking. And so we see this emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew on a heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly one. There's a reason that expression only appears in that Gospel. There's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus did not come to take over Parliament House or 
to rule on a literal throne and set up literal armies and take care of a literal economy and all those things. But he came to introduce, to make a way for us to enter into a spiritual kingdom. Hence the emphasis on the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke 17, he was demanded of the Pharisees. They said to him, when the, asked him when the kingdom of God should come. And he said to them that the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. He said, some people say, look over here and look over there. He said, that's not how you find the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is within you. Again, the emphasis was on a spiritual situation. He was talking about something that would happen within the hearts and minds and souls of humanity that would transform them, not transform what was going on around them, which was with the things that they desired. Amen. But even though Jesus spoke of a heavenly kingdom, he was not speaking of a time, I do not believe, when men would be in heaven. When he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't talking about when the Lord comes back and everybody goes to be in the eternal city. That's not what he was talking about. But I believe rather he was talking about that kingdom of heaven in the right here and the right now amongst his people and amongst his church. Because when you read many of the descriptions of the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, they're talking about things that, are, that happen in the present. There, there is the uh, instruction about the laws of sowing and reaping and the different kinds of soil and how that there were tares or toxic weeds that grew up together with the wheat. These aren't things that happen in heaven. These are things that happen in the church age. And so when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, we need to be careful we don't think, oh, that's later. No, no, the kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom of heaven is a place where Jesus rules and reigns. And at this point in time, it's amongst his people. At that point, it will be over everything. But then, unfortunately, the majority of humanity are not being ruled and reigned over by the Lord at this point in time. And so we've read this passage from Matthew 25, and I think most of us understand that a talent in the Scripture is, is a particular weight. It is not an ability. It's not a musical talent or a singing talent or a whatever talent somebody might have, but a talent was a weight. And so when this man... This obviously a man of some wealth and, and substance, substance gave talents to his servants. He was putting in their trust an amount of money. It, it was putting, he was giving, and it was a significant amount of money. He wasn't leaving them with just change to make a phone call. But a talent was a significant weight of money. And he was trusting them with that. And, but you see, money is not the object of the parable. And that's something we need to understand from the start. Money is not why we have the parable, but money is being used to communicate to us an idea or a concept or a principle. The object of the parable is not money, but the object of the parable is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's all about. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's the focal point of everything that he says after that. The kingdom of heaven is like. And you can read in Matthew 25, there are several other examples. There's the... the, the the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. If you go to Matthew chapter 13, I think it is, you'll see the parable of the, the wheat and the tares and of the, how the kingdom is like a woman who hid a measure of hid, uh, leaven in three measures of meal. And there's, there's m much in the book of Matthew has examples of the kingdom of heaven. But to, to look at this a piece at a time and to try and get to where I think the Lord wants us to get to this morning. This man in this parable gives each of his servants an amount of funds, not the same amount each. 
So he's obviously not a communist. He gives each of his servants a particular amount, and that amount is determined by what they are able to handle. That's why the expression, according to their several ability, means as to what they can handle. Each servant is given an amount based upon what they can handle. Then this man goes away to a far country, and it seems to be understood that they believe that he would return. Then the servants make decisions about what to do with the talents that they've been trusted with. Two of them putting the money to work in some fashion, investing or working in business in some way. And the third servant hiding his single talent in a hole in the ground. And upon the return of the master, of the man to whom the servants belong, each of them is required to explain to him what they have done with that talent in his absence. Those that have made a profit, in both cases they made a 100% profit, were blessed of the Lord and told to enter into the joy of the Lord. The servant who hid his talent, didn't lose his talent, but hid his talent, was rebuked and was cast out. It's quite a, a contrast in the reactions. And the usual, there's, a, there's quite a bit of opinion around this parable, and I'm just going to add mine to the mix this morning. But the usual understanding of the identity of the characters is that the man who owns the servants is speaking about the Lord, how that he would go away and that he would return. And that the servants to whom he entrusts are the children of God or the church or the people that believe or belong to him. That's pretty much the consistent understanding. Now, the Lord, as he did in this parable, gives to each of us of his goods. It's important we understand that. The Bible says that he gave to each of his servants of his goods. They did not belong to the servants. They were his goods. And God imparts things to us that are his, that belong to him, that he entrusts into our care. And each of us is entrusted on an individual basis, each receiving a specific portion, if you like to use that word, that is not the same as anybody else's. God made each and every one of us unique. Every one of us is unique. No two of us are the same, and God forbid that we should strive to be the same as one another. There is nothing wrong with being a good example to one another, but there's something terribly wrong when we try to clone one another. If God wanted us to be all the same, he would have made us all the same, but he did not. And that lets us know several things. Number one, that God is amazing and that he creates each of us uniquely. But that also that not one of us is complete in the kingdom of God on their own. That's why we need to be in church. That's why you need to belong to a family of God because nobody has everything. But God puts us together to contribute to that situation. So the question, I guess, is this. Or at least the question that I've been asking in my mind. What does the talent represent in our lives today? If we say, all right, Lord, here's this parable in Matthew 25 about this man and his servants. There's obviously something in there for us. It's not a, just a story because, you know, the publisher said you need about another thousand words in this gospel. It's there for a purpose. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we should whenever we approach the word of God, what is that purpose? What does the Lord say to me through his word? The talent is definitely not speaking about our salvation. To start with, 
Nobody receives more or less salvation than their brother or sister. Nobody here is three times more saved than somebody else or one-third saved than the other person that's got triple salvation. Salvation is you're either saved or you're lost. Nobody is extra saved or slightly saved or partially saved. You're either saved or you're not saved. So when we read about these, these talents that are trusted, it's not talking about salvation. We can, I think we can establish that fairly clearly. But having said that, the use of the talents does have an impact upon salvation. How do we know that? Because the unprofitable servant, and he, as he was described, was cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a good place. Where that unprofitable servant was cast out is not a good place. Now, I would suggest it's symbolic of the judgment of God. There's not really too many other ways that you can read into that. When you're cast out into darkness, you've left light. And so there is obviously a serious consequence in that situation. So there's something that belongs to God. This talent, whatever we try to establish what it is. It belongs to God. It is entrusted to us. It is entrusted to us. It is given as we can handle individually. God will not give you something that he doesn't think you have the ability to handle. Second, beyond that, that we have a responsibility to do something with it once it's given to us. I think that's pretty clear. And when we do something with what God has entrusted us with, it will grow. It's supposed to grow. The good servants took what was given to them and what they did with it caused it to multiply. There was supposed to be some sort of productive outcome. And that when we return it to the Lord, and this is important we understand this, when we return it to the Lord with the growth that has been produced, He gives it back to us to continue to use, to continue to do with it as we think we should. How do I know that He gives it back to us? Because when He judged the unprofitable servant, He took the one talent from him and He said, and gave it to the one that had ten. So even though that servant had said, Lord, here's what you gave me and it's doubled, he still had the ten. And he was given the one to go with his ten, so now he had eleven. Very, very unfair in a politically correct modern society that we live in. But the Lord's never been particularly interested in being politically correct. So what is the parable all about? It's about the kingdom of heaven. Remember that that's the focal point of the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. Fill in the parable. God has placed His kingdom in the hands of His people. The preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the word, the, the building up of the family and the body of Christ is in our hands. He has placed His kingdom in our hands and He wants each of us to invest what He has placed in our hands as He has equipped us to. Not as he has equipped your brother or sister to, but he has, as he has equipped you to. Something else we notice about the parable is that there are no servants that are left with nothing. There's no five-talent servant, two-talent servant, one-talent, and sorry, all you guys missed out. We ran out of talents. But everybody is given something, which tells me that God wants everybody in the kingdom of God to be trusted with something and to do something for his kingdom 
and in his kingdom and for his name's sake. Nobody is surplus. There has never been an unemployment problem in the kingdom of God. God has never thought, well, they've got all these people that just want to serve me, but right now there's no positions vacant. No, no, no. The principle of the word of God is that the harvest is great and the laborers are few. So none of us can suggest that we don't have a place in that harvest. Amen. The, the growth, if you like, of what God entrusts us with needs to happen within us and without us. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So by allowing the Spirit of God to change us, to mold us, to help us to grow, it is increasing within us. And as it increases within us, it should be also increasing without us and what we are doing for the Lord. Now again, how we measure increase is not necessarily how God does. We need to understand that at the start because we measure a little bit differently to how God measures. You see, what you see about yourself as limitations and shortcomings. Anybody feel like they've got shortcomings? Anybody feel like they could really do something for God if they had? Fill in the blank. You know, I'd really like to be involved in, but I don't have... If you'd never felt like that, you're a pretty rare person. <laughs> Most of us, at some point, if not many points in our lives, feel inadequate for the task that is in front of us. And it's a good thing that we do. Because the Bible says that it's out of our weakness that he is made strong. It is out of his grace that we find our sufficiency, not out of our own natural abilities. If God, if God says to you, this is what I'd like you to do in my kingdom, you say, no problems, that's easy, I've got this. You've misheard him. <laughs> you may have only heard half the story because God is always going to stretch you a little bit. That way it has to be by faith and not by ability or skill. And what you see about yourself as limitations and shortcomings, God sees as his initial investment in you. And while you may perceive it as small as only one talent and nothing like your two talent or five talent brothers and sisters may have, God has invested in you. And what happens from here on in is really up to you. What happens from this point is now in my hands and in your hands. What we do with that talent that God has given us. So we need to remember that although we see ourselves as inept, unable, insufficient, inadequate, and any other word you can think of that makes us feel like we can't, God says, if I've put it in your hands, you can. Trust me, do something with it. Throughout the Word of God, there are examples of this. Moses has one of the most incredible encounters with God in the Scripture. On the Mount of God, when the burning bush doesn't consume with fire, and God speaks, and he's having this mind-blowing experience. And God says, there's something I'm wanting to give you to do, and Moses pulls out his resume of why he's not qualified. Now, when you go for a job interview, you try to convince them why you are qualified. Too often in the kingdom of God, we want to convince God why we are unqualified, just like Moses did. Well, that's a great idea, God, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do that because A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on and so forth we go. And we justify a lack of activity based on what we perceive about ourselves rather than the one that speaks to us. And the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? 
And Moses said, it's a rod or a staff. Probably didn't look much like this, but he had a shepherd's rod in his hand. He's like, wow, I've got a stick. And you want me to go to Egypt, talk to Pharaoh, and bring out a multitude of people with a stick? Good plan. Good plan. But then the Lord begins to show Moses that it's not about the stick. Because as the Lord says, now throw that thing on the ground, and it turned into a snake, and Moses freaked out, as any one of us would. And then the Lord said, pick it up by the tail, and it turned back into the rod again. That rod went on to play a part in Moses' ministry and his leadership to the point that the Old Testament refers to it as the rod of God. That rod that he thought was for tapping sheep and guiding the flock and maybe chasing away a predator, that rod was used to demonstrate the power of God in the palace of Pharaoh. That rod was raised up over the Red Sea and the waters rolled back and the Israelites went across dry shod. That rod struck a rock in a desert place and a water river flowed and a multitude of people were able to drink. That shepherd's rod that Moses had, and he said, what God gave him. If you want to draw that parallel this morning, the talent of his kingdom that God placed in Moses' hand, when he began to trust the one that gave it to him, the investment began to produce. Bless the Lord. Judges chapter 7, we read the story of a man by the name of Gideon who has an encounter with an angel from the Lord and the angel says, Thou mighty man of valor. Gideon says, No, he lives next door. That's not me. I am not a mighty man. You see, Gideon was living in a time when the Midianites and the Amalekites were coming down and terrorizing the people of Israel, which was partly due to the fact that they weren't really doing what God wanted them to do, but to the point that every time they harvested their crops, the enemy came through and took the harvest. They'd come and take their sheep and their oxen. And, and so the people were existing on very little. And when this angel finds Gideon, he's hiding with a little bit of wheat, just trying to you know, crush the wheat and get a little bit of substance for himself to live. And the Lord lets him know to save time, just to paraphrase, you know, we're going to use you to deliver the people and he again he's like well lord i need the sign i need something to show me and we, if you know the story he gets a piece of fleece a piece of wool and he says lord i'm going to put this out overnight and i can't remember the exact order i'm pretty sure i'm going to get it wrong but he says if i get up in the morning and the ground is wet and the fleece is dry i'll know that this is from you and the lord says okay he gets up in the morning it's exactly as he requested he says just one more time lord let's do the reverse tonight i'll get up and the ground is dry and the fleece is wet and god did it again and so Gideon did what any natural man would do. He got as big an army together as he could. Something around 32,000 men. And the Lord said, there's too many. Okay. So Gideon said, the Lord told Gideon to tell him, if you'd like to go home, go home. The Bible says that when he said that, 22,000 people went home. Can you imagine how Gideon's feeling as two-thirds of his army just walk away? And he's like, wow, wasn't ready for that. And then the Lord says, there's still too many. And Gideon's like, seriously? And the Lord puts them through what's come to be known as the water test, where they go down to the river. And he says, you know, that some of them just fell on their faces and drank like they were dying of thirst without being aware of what was going on. Some knelt down and lifted the water up in their hand with most commentators seem to suggest it was being alert like a soldier probably should be. By the time it was all said and done, Gideon was left with 300 men. To come against an enemy, the Bible says, covered the land. 
But what was the purpose? The purpose was that God would be glorified. And one of the reasons God said to Gideon, you've got too many, was that he said, because if you do it with this 32,000 men, they'll start saying, well, we were pretty awesome. We were brave. We were bold. We were soldiers. We were, we were tough. But God reduced it to a point where only one person would be glorified, and that would be God himself. Amen. God didn't want people in the army that didn't want to be there. It's interesting. If you've been reading your bread Bible, you probably found in Deuteronomy chapter 20 the other day, there was an instruction that God gave about when they were going out to fight, when they were going out to war. It said there was a few things. He said if there's somebody that's built a house, but they haven't dedicated that house yet, then they stay home. They don't fight. If there's somebody that's planted some grapes and they haven't yet been able to harvest those grapes, they get to stay home. They don't have to go and fight. If there's somebody that's just got married and hasn't had a honeymoon yet, they get to stay home with their wife and they don't go to war. But then he said... Then the Lord said, he said, the officers shall go among the people and, and shall say, is there anybody here that's fearful and faint-hearted? He said, you go home as well. But the reason was, he said, he didn't want them affecting their brethren. Because fear spreads. Doubt spreads. And the Lord said, if they're not with us, send them home. And that goes for us today. What negativity spreads really easily. It's actually, it doesn't take much effort at all. It's really easy. But God doesn't want us to be negative. God was, doesn't want us to discourage the army of God. Amen. We could look at the life of King David, just a shepherd boy out in the fields, sent to take some food to his brothers on the battlefront, soldiers, men with swords and spears and shields. And he goes there and sees Goliath, and Goliath is this big, ugly giant that's screaming at the people of God, send me somebody to fight, and not one lousy soldier would stand up. And this adolescent shepherd boy says, I'll take him. Because he wasn't thinking about the size of the giant. He was upset at the fact that this giant was resisting his God. And he goes before King Saul. And Saul looks at him and thinks, this is the best we've got. Because there wasn't much to David at that point. He wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger or some great big, you know, ultimate warrior type character. He was just a kid, just a young man. And Saul tries to do what he can to help him out. You know, well, if I'm going to send him out to die, at least we've got to try to help him out. Puts his armor on him and there's David standing there wearing, and Saul was a big man. Saul was a big man. I need somebody short to help me out here. Christopher, come here. There's David in Saul's armor. And David's thinking, hmm, this is not good. Thanks, buddy. You can sit down. He'll grow into that. Hopefully not that way. David says to Saul, I can't use these things. Why couldn't he use them? Because he said, I haven't proved them. I haven't tested them. In other words, he'd never used them before. They didn't come from God. They came from Saul. And so when David went out against Goliath, he went out with a sling and a little bag full of rocks. Why? Because that's what he had. That was his talent. That's what God had put in his hand. And he took that little insufficient 
not adequate, not good enough, too weak, not talented enough, sling, and he invested it. And you know what happened later on? There's a whole bunch of people in the army of Israel that could use a sling. Before that, no, no. But once David became king, he had a whole, I don't know what the proper word is, a battalion or a troop or a cohort of men that could hit a hair's breadth with a rock. Because all of a sudden, the sling became the most fashionable weapon around. Everybody wanted one. Before that, all the little kids wanted a spear and a shield like Dad, but now everybody wanted a sling because David killed a big ugly giant with that sling. Because he took what would have seemed less than a talent in his hand and said, if God kept me against the lion and against the bear, then it's not about how big the giant is. It's about how big the God is that kept me in the first place. And I'll throw this thing. That's what it's about. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Abraham took the miracle that Isaac was. He waited a long time to have that kid. And then God said, offer him as a sacrifice. And he took that miracle that God had given him and invested him back into the kingdom and God gave it back to him. And from that miracle came a grandson named Jacob. And from Jacob came great-grandchildren. And from them came a people and a nation that would eventually give us God manifest in the flesh, the Messiah. Amen. Bless the Lord. This morning... If you've been born of water and of spirit, then you are a part of the kingdom of God. Now, that, if, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name or filled with the Holy Ghost, then that's where it starts. Because Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, he said, if, you don't, if you're not born again, you're not born of water and spirit, you can't enter or see the kingdom of God. So until we're born again, we're kind of on the outside looking in. And once we're born again, baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, we become a part of God's kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Apart from being saved, which is really important, it means that God has placed at least one talent in your hands. Not money, although he may bless you materially. Not musical ability, although he may give you that. But he has given you a piece, if you like, of the kingdom. It is customized for you. It belongs to you. That he has divided to you according to your several abilities. He wants you to do something with your part of his kingdom. That's your talent this morning. And it doesn't matter who you are. Because even if you think, you see, most of us would probably describe, if, if I said to you this morning, raise your hand if you think you're a five-talent servant. How many of you would raise your hand? Probably not many of us. Most of us probably wouldn't even raise our hand for the two-talent question. Even if we thought we were, we'd be staying humble. But if I said, who feels like they're only a one-talent servant? All the hands go up. But you see, it's not about how you see it. Because the servant that had one talent, had he done, had he done what the others did and worked that talent, he would have got two. And he would have, the Lord would have said to him, well done there, good and faithful servant, and into the joy of the Lord. And so he would have doubled what he started with. But because God would put it back in his hands... He became a two-talent servant. When he took those two talents and he went out and he worked with them, they would have become four. And then you can do the math. It keeps going. It keeps going. But the problem is sometimes so many of us are one-talent servants and think that we have no talents and so nothing ever happens. And the investment never gets a return. 
And God is saying, the kingdom is in your hands. The kingdom of God is within you. Everybody say, it's within me. It's not just in the pastor or just in the ministers or just in the leaders. The kingdom of God is within you, which means that God has invested in each of you and wants to see you do something with that investment. He wants you to take it no matter how small it may seem, no matter how feeble it may be. When you say, Lord, what can I do? And the only ideas you come up with don't even seem worth bothering with. Bother with them. Because many of the people that you know, whether here or elsewhere that you look up to, many of them started with less talent than you have. Many of them started out with nothing that anybody thought was of any value, but they took what they thought was worthless and said, I'm going to give it. I'm going to put it into the kingdom. I'm not going to hide it in the ground. Bless the Lord. You see, the one talent servant's mistake was that he was fearful. He was afraid of his master, and he was afraid of losing it, so he hid it. And guess what? He lost it anyway. The master took it off him. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't want us to be fearful. He wants us to trust him. If you believe that God loves you, the scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. And so that we should trust God that if he's given it to me, he'll help me to do what he wants me to do with it. Instead of saying, well, if I was like brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, then maybe I'd be of some value. You are of some value. Enough that he died for you. He didn't die for you just to get you ready for heaven and put you on a bus stop and wait till Jesus' rapture bus comes. He wants us to be active. He wants us to say, all right, Lord, I'm only a one-talent servant, but let's do what we can with this thing and let's see what happens. Joshua and his arm. There are so many examples in the Word of God. Saul and his men are basically hiding from the Philistines. Joshua says to his armor bearer, let's go up against this garrison of the Philistines and let's throw out a challenge and see what happens. And his servant says, I'm with you all the way, Josh. Let's do this thing. And they go up there and from what I understand of the scripture, they had a sword, one. And they basically went back to back. One was holding the shield, one was holding the sword and they begin to slaughter the enemy. And they brought about a victory that nobody would have bet on. Because there was a factor in the mix that people could not see. Josh, not, I said Joshua, didn't I? It was Jonathan. So I'm just making up Bible stories as I go along. It was Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and his armor bearer. Rewind the tape and edit that bit out. It was Jonathan, but Jonathan trusted that if it was God's will, that they would have the victory. He didn't, you know, start, well, there's two of us and 10, 20, 30, 40. He wasn't doing that calculation. He's just saying, if God makes it possible, we'll trust him. We'll do it. We'll bring the victory to the people of Israel. Amen. So many times. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the fearful and the unbelieving are at the head of the queue of those that go into an eternity without God. The fearful and the unbelieving. Goliath's voice, and we talked last week about the voices that guide your life. Goliath's voice struck fear into an entire army. Just his voice. Now, admittedly, he was a big guy. 
But just like the devil, it is the devil's voice that paralyzes the children of God sometimes, like a roaring lion. But he is a liar, the Bible says, and the father of it. Amen. Bless the Lord. You can make a difference. I guess what I'm wanting to say is I believe God wants to do great things with us. Not with me, with us. With this church, with this family of God. He, people are coming in and being saved, but the thing is the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that gave these talents unto his. And so I'm not saying that's the only application of that parable this morning. But I do believe that God has invested in each of us. Now we can have a small army mindset like Gideon. Well, this is not going to do the job. You know what happened to Gideon? Gideon, the Lord said to Gideon, go down into the enemy camp. He took his servant with him and they eavesdropped on the enemy soldiers. And the soldiers were talking and one said, you know, I had this dream had this dream and this happened and we were all just defeated and his friend said to him surely that's the sword of Gideon somehow they knew about this guy and they were already convinced that he was going to annihilate them God had already gone before them prepared the way how many times in our lives is the way prepared but then the way just waits because we're thinking I'm just a one talent servant so we can have a small army mindset we can have a small church mindset. You know, if we had 200 people, we could do a lot more in here. Well, yeah, that's probably true, but we're not going to get them if we see they're waiting for them to show up. <laughs> and advertise, we need another 100 people before we can do anything. Would you please come? No, no, no. We start with what God has given us. We invest this talent. He will bring the return. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Amen. We could, we could go with that negative mindset and say why it's not happening and why this and why that. Or we can choose to have a mindset that looks at how big our God is. We can choose to be the little boy who said, oh, I've got a fish sandwich. If it was nowadays, Lord, I've got a cold fillet of fish. That's all I've got. And God took that bit of bread, bit of fish, and began to multiply. I promise I don't know what the future of that young man's life was, but I promise you, his family, his children, his grandchildren, they heard that story. Every time do we have to go to granddad's house, he's going to tell us about the fish and the bread again. I promise you, he told that story. Let me tell you about the time I saw Jesus do something amazing with my lunch. Anytime he met a new person after they've been introduced, let me tell you about the time... Because it changed his life. The poor widow woman came to the man of God and said, the debtors, are go, the creditors rather, are going to come and take my sons because I'm not able to pay the debt. And the prophet, he didn't say, well, this is what you need. Here's your shopping list. If you can't get these things, you're lost. He said, what have you got in your house? He didn't say, well, we're going to need a... Um, we're going to have to go somewhere where they'll do, you know, short-term loans. We're going to have to get some collateral. He just said, what do you have? She said, I've just got this little bottle of oil. And the man of God said, go and get from your neighbors as many empty bottles as you can. And when you've got them, come into your house, close the door, and start pouring. And the laws of physics just disappeared. Because one little bottle simply does not hold enough to fill all those other bottles. Any scientist will tell you that's impossible. But somehow, 
miraculously when she took what she had. Now, she was a widow with a little bottle of oil. If that's not a one-talent servant, I don't know what is. And she took that oil, and as she tipped, and that greasy liquid began to flow, miraculously, God was making more oil in the back of the bottle. It's got some miniature olive press going on there in the back of the bottle. And as the water's flowing out, the, the oil's flowing out the front, God's producing more in the back. And it didn't stop until she ran out of vessels. What would have happened if she said, said, that's a stupid idea? That's a stupid idea. What a dumb thing to suggest. I've got one little bottle. Are you hard of hearing? I have one small bottle of oil. And they told me, you're a prophet. She had not taken that opportunity. Two sons would have been sold into slavery. She may have died because of a lack of family to care for her needs. But she said, God, I've got a little bottle. Stand with me if you would this morning. Instead of having a this is all I have point of view, how about we change that to a this is all he is point of view. God, the Bible says, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How is that going to happen? How is it possible that people are going to even find out they need to repent? The kingdom of God's within you. It's within me. He's put it in our hands. Don't bury it. Don't hide it in a hole in the ground and say, Lord, I've got this. It's a bit dirty, a bit smelly. It's been underground for a while. But I want to say, God, whatever I have got that you can use. Why don't you lift your hands and worship him this morning? doesn't matter if you're young or old, single, married, a kid, a teenager, you're retired, whatever your status is, you have a talent this morning. God considers you his servant. He's put something in your hands. What are you going to do with it? Hallelujah. What will be your investment? If God tarries, if the Lord's return tarries in 20 years, you'll be able to sit down with somebody that's just been born again and say, you know, I was once just like you. Felt like I could do nothing for the Lord, but I took the little bit that I had and I gave it to God and then this happened and then that happened and before long, you know, I was making a difference over here and God was using me over there and I was being a blessing over here and I reached for a family member here and a colleague at work there, but it started with one talent. One talent. That's all it takes. One talent and faith. Loaf of bread, a little bit of fish. Here it is, God. There's 5,000 people. I don't know what we're going to do with this. But you can. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Why don't we just across this place present ourselves to him this morning?